Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Um, Father God, we thank you for your word in Psalm 144. We thank you that we see in it a God who has big hands, who is able to hold all things together in the palm of your hand. And we thank you that at the same time those hands are open, giving generously, uh, providing for, for your whole creation. Father, we ask that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Who can tell me who this is? No historians amongst us. It's Benito Mussolini. Il Duce. Sorry for my butchering the Italian, if any of you speak Italian. It means the leader. And he was the dictator, uh, Italian dictator in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, Mussolini may not have been the most successful dictator um, compared with, say, Hitler and Stalin and some others, but people who study dictatorships will tell you that Mussolini was the one who wrote the textbook for Propaganda for Dictators 101. Any budding dictators amongst you need to study Mussolini because he perfected the idea of creating a myth that you are all-powerful, all-seeing, even that somehow you are everywhere, able to see everything that goes on. He gave radios to every primary school student in Italy at a time when radios were as rare as hen's teeth and very difficult to get, so that his voice could be heard by every student in the country. And for those not reached in the schools, there are 800,000 speakers put in every town square in Italy so that his voice blared across each town so that the people could all hear his voice. He kept the light on his office burning night and day to create the illusion that he never slept, that he was always awake, always in control. There was no escaping Il Duce. He was everywhere. Even in the privacy of people's bathrooms, they couldn't escape him because every cake of soap had a picture of Mussolini looking up at you as you, as you went into the shower. Mussolini and every dictator after him tried to create the myth that those iron hands, that iron fist that you see that crushed the people into submission was all, were also big hands that were everywhere and all-knowing, all-controlling. In Psalm 144 that we're looking at today, we hear about one who also rules with big hands. But unlike Mussolini, his power is real. He doesn't need propaganda. He doesn't have to manufacture a myth. God's hands are so big that he holds the whole of his creation in those two hands. He puts everything in its proper place. He keeps everything the way, he, he's put everything the way that he designed it. But also unlike the dictator who has to crush their opposition with that iron fist and a jackboot, God's hands are open, providing generously and abundantly for his creation. He gives generously and in abundance for the benefit of all his creatures. Psalm 104 is a song of praise 
to this God who orders and rules over his creation with open and generous hands. We're going to look at four main points today and if you've got your bulletin, you might like to follow along, it's in, in your bulletin. Four main points that the, the author makes in this psalm. One, he is a king who looks over all he has made like a warrior riding on the clouds on a chariot. Two, he made everything in its proper place. Three, he is an open-handed God who provides for his creation. And then our fourth point, the proper response for us as his creatures is to praise him. Well, let's jump straight into it with our first point. Uh, Number one, the king who rides the wind. Uh, The psalm starts off in verses 1 to 4 with a call to praise, to, uh, to, to, uh, to praise God as the king over all of creation, who watches over everything as he rides on the clouds like a chariot on the wind. He is clothed with splendor and majesty, as it says in verse 1. Then have a look at verse 2 with me. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. Light is a symbol of glory, perfection, and it's often used of God. But as we read these first few verses, it also reminds us of something else as well. Have a listen to the next couple of lines. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Light, the heavens set in place over the waters. Does that remind you of anything? If you're familiar with the very first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 1, you'll recognise strong echoes of the creation story. The psalmist is reminding us that God, the God who sustains his creation in Psalm 104, is the same God who made the world in the first place. He was the one who set the heavens in place and now he rides the wind on the clouds as he rules over it. There's also an interesting little thing that the author does with the language of these verses. Look at the end of verses 3 and 4 with me. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. The word for wind in Hebrew can also mean spirit and breath as well. It has those three meanings. In Genesis 1, that same word is used to uh, describe the Spirit of God hovering over the waters as God created the heavens and the earth. Here, God rides on the wings of the wind. But I think the author is intending a double meaning. Not only is it a wind, but he, he aims to bring to mind his Spirit, that God is with his Spirit as he oversees as he as he upholds his creation just as he was with it in his spirit at the beginning of creation as he made it the author goes on in the next section to start to paint the picture of what sort of king god is section two point two everything is in its place just the way god intended it to He is the one who created an ordered world 
where everything has its proper place. He made things right, so they stay put. Have a look at verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations that can never be moved. It's a picture of, of God making things right and they're permanent. They don't budge from those foundations. I don't know what your experience with DIY is, putting things together. Uh, I have a troubled history with DIY. My track record is pretty ordinary, let me tell you. I hate those IKEA beds and cupboards where you get those complicated instructions which at the end of the day I have to throw out and try to, try to work it out by myself. Um, but no matter how much care I take in putting those things together, I always leave something out. and It's always something essential. But then no matter how much care I take putting in the screws and the nails as carefully as I can, the beds I put together always make you feel like you're permanently at sea. <laughs> like there's a generous wobble to them that, go, that keeps going every night you sleep in them. But God's, words, God's work isn't like that, is it? What God puts together stays together. It's firm. It's unshakable. And he's also made sure that the waters stay where they're supposed to stay. Have a look at verse from verse 6. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. Verse 8, they flowed over the mountains, they went down into the valleys to the place you assigned them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Now again, this is the language of creation. And it's also mixed in with a Noah story. I don't know if you picked that up. Where the floods covered the earth, but then the waters receded. In Genesis 1 in creation, the waters covered the earth, but then God created the dry land and separated the land from the water and made sure that they stayed separate. The sea was in its, its boundary, never, to, never to, to go past those boundaries. We lose the significance of that but as modern people, but if you're a Jew in ancient Israel, that would have been very significant because water in any kind of big amounts, in lakes uh, and particularly in oceans seas, water was something to be feared. Uh, it was a symbol of chaos and death. It was connected with the realm of darkness and evil. But here we're told in Psalm 104 that God has perfect control over all of that. He puts it in its place and it, they don't move. When he tells them to stay, they stay. That's a powerful picture of God having big hands, that he's in control, that he's able to put the water in its place. He's able to control the powers of chaos and darkness. Further on in the psalm, there's another description of the sea. Jump down to verse 25 with me. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number. Living things, both large and small. Verse 26. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed, to frolic there. Here we have the sea. Instead of being a place to be feared, it's actually a place of blessing. 
teeming with life, creatures beyond, beyond numbers. That's another picture from Genesis chapters 1 to 2 where God blesses creation by creating life in abundance. Notice that it's also useful to human beings. Ships go to and fro on the sea. And then there's a very interesting addition at the end of verse 26. Leviathan is also on the sea, which you formed to frolic there. In the Jewish world, Leviathan was a mythical sea monster who represented chaos and evil. We told in the book of Isaiah that in the day of the Lord, that's describing the day that, that God will come back in judgment and at the same time he will put all things right. On that day, have a look with me, on that day, in, verse, in Isaiah 27, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding servant, Leviathan, the coiling servant, he will slay the monster of the sea. God will slay Leviathan meaning the forces of evil will be put in their place and dealt with once and for all. But here in Psalm 104, Leviathan is created by God to play in the water. What are we to make of that? Well, the point is that the sea and Leviathan are all under God's control. He has them all in his hand. They are no longer things to fear because God's big hands are able to keep them in check exactly where he wants them. Leviathan is in the sea, but it splashes around and plays there. God has turned the sea from being a place of chaos to a useful place, a place of blessing. Now, we may not be afraid of Leviathan or the sea, but for people in 21st century Australia, this is still an enormously comforting word for us. Because it tells us that God's hands are big enough to deal with the things that we are afraid of. Perhaps you're worried about work. Perhaps, you're, perhaps it's particularly stressful. You have a boss who's demanding and hard to deal with. Perhaps you just feel like you can't, whatever you do, you can't please him or her. Perhaps things at home are really hard with your parents, with your kids. Maybe you can't, just can't see light at the end of the tunnel. Psalm 104 reminds us that yes, there are things in life like the sea that can make us afraid, things we can't control. But the God whose hands are big enough to deal with Leviathan and the sea are also big enough to deal with our problems. He is in control. So Psalm 104 tells us that God is in control over the whole world. He has big hands that keep everything in its proper hands, proper place. But as well as that, he is a generous God who has open hands. And that's our third point. In the section that following the description of the sea being put in its place, the author talks about a different kind of water, not the sea, um, not vast amounts of water this time, but water that brings life. 
to living things. Have a look with me at verse 10. He makes springs pour, for, pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. In verse 13, he waters the mountains with rain. Notice that in these verses, God is providing for places that are out of the reach of human beings, far away from where people live. The mountaintops where it's too steep to build houses or grow crops. The wild country where, where the wild donkeys roam. And we see the same idea later on. God looking after the places and creatures far from the human world. Verse 18, again God sends rain to the mountains that belong to the wild goats. Verse 21, the lions roar and seek their prey. They roar for their prey and they seek their food from God. The picture here is God caring for the whole of creation. He cares for those parts that we never even lay eyes on. The parts that we don't even think about. The animals that live way up in the mountains. That human eyes never see. Even the animals that we fear and are hostile to human beings, the lions and predators, those things are precious to God. The world of nature is valuable in God's eyes for its own sake, not just for the way it provides for human beings. Human beings have a pretty dismal record when it comes to caring for the environment, don't we? We've considered the world to be there to be plundered and exploited at our convenience with not much regard for the consequences. And now we're reaping what we've sown. Climate change, drought, bushfires. God provides for the places that are beyond the world of human habitation. But at the same time, he also looks after us. He also looks after the domesticated world. Look at verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. God gives us the food we need. He provides for, for cattle and livestock that in turn provide for provide meat and food for us. He provides rain so that we can grow the crops. He gives us everything we need to live. But it doesn't end there because we could survive on, on bread and water, but God also gives us wine, oil to make our faces shine. Or if you don't drink, you might substitute wine for ginger beer or Coke or, or whatever you like to drink. Whatever helps you relax and, and add some enjoyment to your day. He gives us things that make our hearts glad. God doesn't just want us to survive. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to enjoy life. Jesus said that our Father in heaven longs to give us good things. Isn't that nice to know? Because life can be pretty hard, can't it? The medical experts tell us to reduce stress and live a balanced life, but 
you and I know that sometimes that can be pretty much impossible. Sickness, trouble at home, pressure at work. There are times when life just seems to overwhelm us and there seems to be no way out. But even in the midst of those times, God in his goodness gives us things to keep us going. A cup of coffee with a friend, a quiet night watching Netflix, having a beer with a few friends over a barbecue, playing Xbox on the weekend. These things are gifts from God that we need to value and give thanks for. So God is open-handed and generous in the way that he provides for all of his creation, from the remotest parts that we never see to the world of human habitation. But there's another aspect of God's generous provision that we see in this psalm. God also gives us times and seasons, rhythms of life. Look with me at verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows where to go down, when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The sun rises and they steal away, they return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labour until evening. God gives us day and night, summer and winter. They are God's gracious provision to give us the rhythms of life that we need. Work and then rest. Go but then stop. That's how God designed us. We enjoy the sun and use its light and warmth to get things done. But then when we get tired at the end of the day, he provides the night time so we can rest, spend time with family, friends, put our feet up. Just as we feel we can no longer cope with day after day of the heat of summer, it starts to cool down and autumn arrives. Then winter comes and winter, as winter drags on and we get uh, sick of being cold, the flowers start to come out and the sense of spring fill the air. As human beings, we need rhythms and change, light and dark, hot and cold, work and rest. It's all part of God's open-handedness towards us. But there is another type of season that God gives us as well. And it's one that we don't often think of as a blessing. Have a look at verse 28. Um, this is talking about God giving food to his creatures. When you give it to them, they gather it up when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Something that we've seen, isn't it, um, throughout Psalm 104. But, the, but then he goes on in the next verse, verse 28. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. There are times, there are seasons, when God hides his face from his creation. Ultimately, there comes a time to every creature when God takes their breath away and they come to the end of their life. Here we see the same word as at the beginning of the psalm, the word describing God riding on the wind can also mean his spirit 
or breath. So here, the God who gives life and works through his spirit also takes his, takes his spirit and the breath of his creatures away at the end of their life. But God can also turn his face away at times that don't lead to death, can't he? Sometimes we can be on the receiving end of that. There are times when God deliberately plays hard to get because we've been wandering away with him, from him and refusing to give him the praise that he calls for. And we need a wake-up call. It became a um, We see that in Israel's history, don't we? When it happened time and time again, a depressingly familiar cycle when Israel would sin, they'd forget God, he would send disaster or allow their enemies to come and beat up on them, to defeat them so that they would repent and then cry out to God and then God would turn his face to them once again. I wonder if you're currently feeling like God has turned his face away from you. If that's you, it's actually God being merciful. Because he wants us to be in a place where we cry out to him in our need, in desperation, knowing that our own resources aren't enough. God, we need you. God, we need you to turn your face to us again. We need to be in a place where we're desperate for him to open his hands again for us. No, it may not feel like it. God turning his face away from us can actually be part of him graciously providing for us, giving us what we need at the time cause us to turn to him, to repent, to trust him, to praise him. And that brings us to our last point. Praise is the proper response to God's big hands, to God's open hands. Have a look with me at verse 33. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. The author understood that the only way he could respond to who God is, how he holds a whole creation in his two big hands and generously opens those hands and provides for all his creatures, including human beings, the only viable way to respond to that is in praise. To know that we depend on him for every breath, to trust that he is in control. So the author's prayer in verse 34 is that his meditation, his thoughts, his attitude is pleasing to God. In other words, that he responds in the right way to God with thankfulness, giving God his due as creator and king. Well, then we come to the last verse of the psalm, verse 35, and it seems a bit clunky and out of place. Have a look with me, verse 35. But may sinners vanish from the earth, and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul, praise the Lord. Why is he suddenly out of nowhere going, 
moving from praising God and talking about responding to his goodness to talking about sinners being wiped off the face of the earth. It's not all that obvious, but what I think is going on here is that the author is drawing a contrast between the praise, his attitude of praise in verse 34 and the opposite attitude in verse 35, which is refusing to praise God. So he's saying, may, the may my attitude be pleasing to God as I rejoice in him, but may those who refuse to give him praise be what be vanished from the face of the earth. Because the only acceptable response to God's big hands and open hands is to be thankful and praise him. And so the last word of Psalm 104 is to call us as human beings to praise our creator, to recognise him as God, to do anything else in the light of all that he has given us would be unthinkable. Now as I've prepared this sermon, I've had a nagging sense that something's not quite right. And perhaps you've picked up on it too. We've heard in Psalm 104 all about God's abundant provision, right? Springs of water, rain for the crops, the earth satisfied as the heavens open up to bring life. But that doesn't quite ring true of our experience in Australia as we come to the end of 2019, does it? What do we see around us? I woke up this morning, well, it was a little while after I woke up, but as the sun came up, it was pretty orange. It wasn't as polluted as a number of days have been in Sydney, but it nevertheless uh, very tellingly reflected the smoke in the air from the fires that have been burning now, some of them for months devastating bushfires that aren't likely to go out until we get significant rain. And there's none of that forecast for the near future. The worst drought in living memory. Have God's hands that Psalm 104 talks about that are open, have they now closed up? What's gone wrong? Well, I don't think we can fully answer that question. We're not God and we don't have special access to God. I'm not a prophet and unless you're a prophet, then you probably don't have the answers either. We do know that the weather here in Australia is a fickle, unpredictable thing. Is what we're seeing just natural? Is there a spiritual reason behind it? We're not given the answer to those questions. But I think there are at least two ways, two things that we can know, two ways that we ought to respond as God's people. Number one, the evidence seems pretty irrefutable that climate change is at least partly responsible for the changing weather. Without getting into the politics of it, we ha there can be no question that we have not respected our environment and preserved our environment like we ought to have. 
We've seen from Psalm 104 that God treasures his whole creation. He values even the parts that human beings never go to. It seems to me that if we take this psalm seriously as God's people, we need to be concerned. We need to be more concerned than we have been for our world. We can't embrace the short-sighted attitude of exploiting creation with no regard to the future that so many in our society have. Number two, it can be easy to become a bit depressed, can't it, as we look at what's going on around us, to feel like things are spinning out of control. But whatever the cause of the bushfires and the drought, there are two things that we can be certain in all of in all this. And one is that God is still in control. His hands are still big enough to take care of us, even when the fires are still out of control. And because of that, the second certain thing is that God wants us to respond to him by turning to him. To throw up our hands in prayer and say that we need you. To say you are God and we are not. We cannot control this situation, but you can. To praise him as the one who provides. The one who gives us breath and life. To turn to him and cry out to him in our need. To sing to the Lord. To sing praise to him no matter what our circumstances. On that note, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And we are going to do just that. We're going to sing to the Lord and respond to the God who has big hands and open hands in song. <laughs>